There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger, editor of Prospect Magazine, and today I'm joined by uh, one of our leading sports writers, Paul Hayward. He's a former chief sports writer at the Daily Telegraph, briefly at The Guardian, and is now a contributing editor at Tortoise. He wrote a really uh, challenging and uh, rather brilliant feature uh, for Prospect called A Sporting Chance. Uh, and in that, Paul investigated cricket's class problem, uh, writing that the growing influence of top private schools on the game is, quote, at once a resurgence of 19th century dominance and one of the sharpest reflections you can find of how modern Britain works. Paul, welcome. And first of all, what made you just decide to write this piece? Well, there had been a lot of discussion, Alan, about the, the drift of the England national team, the test team in particular, to a position where it, it was it appeared to be almost entirely private school based. In other words, all the all the, the, the test cricketers in England were coming from these very powerful, very opulent leading private schools. And it really it, part of the reason it was so interesting uh, was that it suggested on the other side of the argument that the state sector, the grassroots sector, the small club sector was in quite rapid decline and that, that cricket was retreating to become a game for the private schools as it had been in the 18th and 19th centuries. So there was a sense of regression, but also a very modern feel of what many of us feel is happening in in, in British society in the way that power networks work and the way that privilege and power are distributed. I think we were, we were talking just before we came on and you said it was a delicate piece to write because you didn't want to come across as though you were attacking anyone for the choices their parents had made or they had themselves had made. Yes, that's true. I think, I think we're all in a bit of a fix over educational imbalance, really, in this country. It's a difficult... Uh, discussion to have because we all know people uh, who either have been to uh, major private schools or who send their children to private schools and one never wants to sort of pass judgment or or intrude on those choices and yet I think as a society we have to examine the outcomes of those choices and the imbalances that are, are created by the phenomenal growth really of some of these schools which are 
results factories with, with huge assets and huge profits and, and a huge influence on society. I don't think that we can ignore the consequences of this, of this division between the 7% of children who go to um, private schools and the 93% of children who go to state schools. And because it's becoming arguably more significant, not less so. I've spent six years in Oxford before coming back into editing, and, and of course, this debate about the um, the imbalance between private and state school students is is very active in higher education. And I completely recognise what you're saying about how difficult it is it is to discuss, and it takes you into very complicated questions about. I mean, for instance, the meaning of social engineering. Um, I mean, there was big correspondence in the Times this week about the people who think there should be more state school students at Oxbridge are accused of social engineering, which, of course, ignores the social engineering that goes on in the choices that people make about education. Yes, I I saw your uh, reference to that, and I've been following the debate about Oxbridge admissions and, and, and whether, I mean, there's been some fairly contentious language, hasn't there, about, about you know, a sort of greater leeway for state school children affecting the international standing of, of Oxbridge uh, colleges. That was my, my favourite reference because it suggested that you would actually dilute Oxbridge by making, them, making it more meritocratic. Uh, a lot of us would obviously take uh, issue with that. I think all, but you would know better than I would, Alan, but all the numbers suggest that there is this imbalance in Oxbridge admissions. And the question becomes, how do you correct that in a fair and progressive way without doing it uh, clumsily in a, and in a way that, that causes injustice and disadvantage to other elements, other groups? But I think many of us would feel that it has to happen, certainly. Well, the dilemma that Oxford and Cambridge in, I, I suppose there's a parallel here with, with cricket, that many people in Oxford and Cambridge and other Russell Group universities would tell you that you know they are there to pick the best, uh, and if it happens that those people have had a better education, it's not for them to be the remedial class for, for the English education system. And I, I suppose there's a similar dilemma in sports. I mean, you, you described the fabulous facilities and training that young people can have at some of the best private schools and of course that is likely to give them an advantage uh, over uh, state school students in in terms of their ability at the age of you know 18 to 22 when they're thinking of becoming professional cricketers. Yes uh, coincidentally I bumped into a an England very well-known England cricketer at a petrol station a couple of days ago now this this chap had been uh, lifted out of so-called out of the state sector. He came from a a relatively low-income background, I suppose you'd call it a working-class background, but was spotted as a very good cricketer and, you know, (laughs) airlifted, if you like, to to Brighton College and given a scholarship. Now, uh, we fell into conversation at the petrol station about the rights and wrongs of that, and he... His argument, and I've heard other England players say the same thing, is that there there is nothing wrong with that if if it provides opportunity for somebody who otherwise wouldn't get those opportunities if they stayed where they were. Conversely, 
it's a worry, I think, that some of the private schools are using sports scholarships to embellish their own status and their, their reputation and their, and their results, certainly. That it's, a, that it's almost a sort of a commercial operation. And the England player I was talking to made the point that it, it's, it's not good enough to just pick out the obvious future stars and give them a scholarship and take them to the, you know, to the opulent private school where there might be 10 cricket pitches and 10 practice nets. Those schools would have a duty to go looking further afield to, to underprivileged areas and to sections of society that, that just are not receiving those phone calls. They're not receiving those offers to, to walk into these sort of wonderlands, these educational wonderlands. So as it currently stands, where the elite are spotted and transferred to very good schools, that doesn't really feel quite good enough. There are some one or two startling statistics in your piece. Um, one of them is taken from Duncan Stone's book, Different Class, The Untold Story of English Cricket, and that, that is about Dulwich College, uh, a very good school in southeast London. It has, according to Stone, eight grass cricket fields, whereas the entire borough of Southwark, in which it's located, has only six. I mean... How much of facilities are a big part of this story and, and the problem that you've unveiled? Well, very big. I mean, we started this conversation by saying it, it, it covers an awful lot, lot of ground. And, and, and you could progress from where we are now in the, in the conversation to asking questions about state investment in state schools, in municipal sport, in sport for all, in grassroots facilities, but particularly in state schools, the state sector. Because I imagine some of the private schools would say, well, look, it, it, it's not our fault if, if the government is failing to provide these opportunities and these facilities for the 93% of children who go to state schools. You know, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be punished for that. And the, the reference you've just made to Duncan Stone's book does push you in that direct direction a little bit and make, make you ask questions of the government and of educational policy in this country over many many decades you know are we are we doing enough to lift state schools are we doing enough to provide opportunities in sport and in life in society above and beyond the the, the power of the, the private schools what's the story with with playing fields now because there, there was a period i don't know what it was was it 25 years ago when we all woke up to the fact that schools were and local authorities were selling off playing fields and you know because they could get much more money for, for building on them. Is, is that still going on or has, is that really a, a story that, that, that happened in the past? It's still going on and, and, it, and it's complicated in relation to uh, cricket because it feels to me that, that cricket is in decline in our recreational culture. It was the national summer game of the nation. It, it no longer is in my view. It's not, it's not played or followed in the same way that it was 50 years ago, say. And so I think state schools have, have changed their priorities in terms of sports provision. Uh, they've used some of the money from the sales of playing fields, for example, to build gyms and swimming pools, which they feel are, are more in tune with, with modern um, tastes and needs. So cricket has a kind of existential problem, I think, in the sense that it's, that it's in decline anyway as a mass participation sport, as a kind of expression of English or British life, summer life, but it's being exacerbated 
by this concentration of power uh, in these in these very very corporate private schools who are extremely good at cherry picking the people they want and need to to maintain their reputation as um, you know successful places to send your children and also to to compete with each other. Let's let's not forget that they are in. They're in a very pretty stiff competition with each other to get these children and to get the parents to spend money there. There's a chicken and egg here, isn't there? I mean, if cricket is in decline in schools generally, um, that could be why there is a decline in in, in cricket being the, the national summer game uh, rather than the other way around. But I mean, the same I fear is going to be true of music training in schools. That I mean, that that has almost been decimated in state schools, and you think that's going to have a terrible effect on on the appreciation of of serious music in twenty years' time. That the audience is just not going to be there for it. Yes, it would be very interesting to make a list of pastimes and recreations and and passions and interests that are currently you know beleaguered as a result of social and economic change, and. You would know music, I'm sure music is on that list, and cricket certainly is. And then you face the question, well, are these are these social trends? Are they just symbols of, of natural change? Or are they being caused by imbalance and underinvestment? I wouldn't pretend uh, to have the answer to that. But I, I think it's certainly true of cricket that it's, that it's a pincer. It's a, it's a falling away of cricket in state schools, in organised sport in state schools actually, um, a falling away of the appetite and interest in cricket as a symbol of national life and then on the other hand this sort of manoeuvre by the, the big private schools to supply, to fill the void and to provide the elite end of professional cricket with international class players. You say organised sport in general but is this story true of football as well? I, I think it is. I would have to go and research that properly. That's, but that's your next piece, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Could be a series. <laughs> but I think sport has migrated to the private sector generally uh, from state schools. I, I think state schools have retreated from organised sport because it's expensive, it's hard to organise, it's, it's all the reasons we know about. They don't have the money. So the private sector has stepped in and I think if, if you're going to be good at organised sport, your school, your state school, won't be the, the main means of progression. And I had a very interesting exchange with Michael Atherton about uh, the, the piece that, that we published in Prospect, and his argument was that all these, actually these good young cricketers come created by their families and, and a sort of innate interest in the game within those families, and that, that excellence and their attainment isn't determined by the, the private school that they're then transferred to it, it, it goes much further back than that so he he would argue that I for example am coming at the argument from the wrong end Joe Root the former England captain started at a state school and was was moved to a, a fee-paying school on a scholarship and Mike Atherton's argument is that Joe Root's prowess and attainment in the game has very little to do with the school that he ended up at. It's more to do with his origins and his roots and his family and his sort of cultural life. The, the story you tell in Prospect it is, it really uses the two different examples of Jimmy Anderson, uh, great, perhaps the greatest English fast bowler, and Alistair Cook, a great batsman. Why did you choose those two as contrasting stories and, and what do their careers illustrate? 
Well, I chose them because they are at the, at the top of their respective tables. Uh, Alistair Cook is the most successful ta- test batsman in English cricket history, and Jimmy Anderson is the most successful red ball bowler. So I thought it was fascinating that the two pillars of the two disciplines in cricket had such contrasting backstories. Um, both absolutely exemplary cricketers, strong personalities, high achievers, but with an entirely different background in terms of the, the, the facilities um, that they'd, they'd been able to draw on in youth and, and the sort of social backgrounds from which they had come. And yet there was a convergence. There was a convergence in the England team where they were, in, in a sense, indistinguishable because they were united by talent and application and strength of character and all those things. But, but underneath it, the, the difference between them told a story about how people progress, perhaps not just in cricket, um, but in society. And it's, I would say, I think I could stand up in court and say this, it's harder to progress the way that Jimmy Anderson progressed than it would be the way Alistair Cook reached the top in professional cricket. How much is this story relevant to the, the well, I was going to say the recent decline, but it's actually a it's fairly long-term decline of England's performances as a test team? And I mean, I, I suppose... It could be argued that if you're only drawing your talent from from seven percent of the population, you're limiting yourself to the to the pool of available talent, and and that um, is going to have an impact on the team's performance. Is is that fair or is that un- unprovable? That that's very interesting because when England were demolished on the most recent Ashes tour of Australia, attention was drawn to the preponderance of private school players in the team and it was <laughs> said slightly sneeringly by some that this was part of the problem in other words that somehow <laughs> life in a private school didn't prepare you as well for adversity and having to you know grapple with aggressive australian batsmen and bowlers as, as life in a you know yorkshire village cricket club would i mean i i, I think people who went who go to private schools would take serious exception to that um, theory but nonetheless, it was it, it, it was it was suggested that the team had become too too soft and too privileged and too complacent, and that they didn't sort of need it enough. You know, they weren't aggressive enough. They were too nice. They were too. It was too much of a hobby to them, and not enough of a a calling, a, a vocation. And so, it's interesting that those those undercurrents are there in terms of how we see uh, different educational roots in society and how we judge each other. We all judge each other on both sides and try not to. But these assumptions kick in. I I don't think the educational background of that team caused their demolition in Australia. I I didn't mean so much the educational background, just, I mean, this is the same argument at Oxbridge. If you're overwhelmingly recruiting from 7% of the population, common sense tells you that in the other 93%, and there are going to be very talented people who are being ignored. And that, that must be true of cricket as well, that, 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 that you're fishing from a very small pool. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think it's probably that the, too many people in the 93% are not getting to the point where they can even be considered because they don't have the opportunities and the facilities to reach that level of excellence where they can be seen as international calibre cricketers. Some will be. But a lot will be sort of headed off long before they get to that point. So your talent pool is reduced and is too small. And 
and certainly, and I think that that, that is a, that is a feeling many would have. It, it's worth saying too that red ball cricket is in serious trouble because it's been supplanted by white ball cricket, which is quicker, faster, shorter, more spectacular, more in tune supposedly with modern tastes. Um, and so red ball cricket, the traditional slower forms of the game, uh, are feeling pretty threatened at the moment. So in cricket specifically, this is part of a, a sort of wider struggle between the past and the future. How, how much of this comes down to the broadcasting rights as well? Uh, I mean, there was a time when all, all, all test matches which are the five-day Red Bull games, were available free-to-air on the BBC, and, and now you, you have to go out and take out a subscription to um, this or that in order to be able to watch cricket, which, again, may have an impact, question mark, on, on the sport's popularity generally. Yes, and that's a, that's a very big question, because television, not just television, television is an almost an outdated concept these days. I mean, broadcast digital media are now dictating to sports the forms that they're going to take, the way they're going to present themselves, the, the, right down to the, the nature and shape of the competition. So uh, the modern tastes and modern broadcasting requirements are dictating to cricket that, that white ball, crash bang wallop, live action can be packaged and sold to today's viewer much more easily than a five-day Red Bull test match that might end in a draw. <laughs> I mean, that is a hard sell uh, in some ways, uh, unless you're already converted and you know the joys of five-day cricket. But there's very much a sort of a defensive, a, 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 a rearguard forming to stop Red Bull cricket being swallowed up by this process. And actually on another day and in another conversation, we could look at the way sports are being um, dictated to, shaped, rewritten by these modern forces. For example, sport washing where nation states are buying clubs. Nation states are starting to, starting to annex whole sports. I mean, they're trying to create an alternative golf tour, for example, which is a direct threat to the, to the existing structures and governing bodies. We see golf states buying football clubs, but we also see private equity buying into rugby union and trying to change the shape of competitions, the dates, the, the duration, everything. So sports, modern commercialised sport, corporate sport, is going through a process of, of profound change, really, uh, as it falls into the hands of commercial interests. And the age of Corinthianism retreats ever further into the past. Uh, cricket is subject to some of those, a lot of those commercial forces too. You op open your piece for Prospect with a, 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 a shock, shock decision by the Maryland Cricket Club, the MCC, which was the, the, the home of cricket, to um, discontinue the Eton versus Harrow game, which had been played since God knows when at Lords, which felt like a sort of symbolic opening to the piece. I mean, I, I read that that argument is still rumbling on. The, the members are <laughs> rebelling against this decision and are not having it. Uh, how do you think that one's going to end? They are. Well, I think that game was first played at Lords in 1804. So you can understand why there's a, there are a group of MCC members who, who don't want to concede defeat and don't accept 
that the game needs to be shunted off somewhere else so that they can put more white ball fixtures in its place. But yes, you're quite right. There is a movement forming, a resistance movement forming. Um, MCC members on the barricades is an alluring image. They're unlikely to win, I think, but it just shows that the, the, the depth of the conservatism, certainly at Lords and the MCC, that they should that they should fight this. The, the rationale has been made for it, and yet there are people inside that club who think that this is this. I think this is an, a symbolic assault on their world, their traditions, their their privileges, and they are resisting it. Well, on the day, we're speaking on the day of the Queen's speech, it would be very entertaining if the first people to be arrested for chaining themselves to the railings were members of the MCC. <laughs> not, not quite what Pretty Patel had in mind, I don't think. But final, final question, Paul. I mean, cricket has been in the news n- not in a good way this year uh, because of all the, the allegations of racism at Yorkshire in particular, but, but at other clubs. Is there a connection here between, I think you used the phrase, racism acts as a, quotes, burly doorman keeping people out of the professional game. Are these two stories linked in any way? Well, it would take somebody far cleverer than me to to really explain the nexus of class and race, I think, in, in English society. But what I would say is it's noticeable that the same problem exists very often with race, as it does with education and class, in the sense that players from minorities will progress so far in the game and then disappear. The, the, the barriers appear to come up and there are strong networks of, of club players and club teams among ethnic minorities in England, but that doesn't appear to translate into representation at county and international level. Therefore, something is stopping them. Something is stopping diversity expressing itself in in English cricket so and then you're into the immensely complicated realm of of whether it's that's attitudes from those uh, in power whether whether there there are other reasons for the flow of players ceasing at, at, at a certain point but I think what we can say is that English cricket is shockingly non-diverse given that many ethnic minorities in England have a strong cricketing tradition and play the game at grassroots level but don't appear to be gaining much of a, a foothold at county and, and national level and and so when you see these reports of overt racism of the sort that um, uh, Azim Rafiki exposed at Yorkshire it does it does appear to tie in there, there, there appear to be uh, connections and a much bigger cultural problem beyond the simple one of opportunity and education. Paul, thank you so much for a for a wonderful piece, B for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in to hear this discussion. If you enjoyed it, uh, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of our new issue of Prospect magazine, which is out this week. And it's got a fascinating piece on the front cover by Ethan Zuckerman. We called it Welcome to the Splinternet. It's how the internet is being divided up by nations, Russia being the latest example of an, the splintering of an ideal of, of a digital space that um, many people had 20 years ago. Or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. Goodbye, stay safe, and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast next week.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.